Hey, what's up, guys? Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Christina's Cozy Quilts. Now that winter is coming, who wants to shiver through their favorite Netflix shows when staying warm is so simple? Forget the itchy wool socks, bulky sweatshirts, and cliche snuggies made from a blend of low-quality chinchilla fur and unrecyclable silkworm fibers. Christina's Cozy Quilts will not only keep you toasty through the dead of winter, but give you comfort knowing that the meat of all the animals used to manufacture each quilt could feed a village of 30 or more children. And they're believing that this will one day be a reality. If you'd like to find out more or purchase a quilt today, please write to Christina's Cozy Quilts, Box 323, Hendersonville, Wisconsin, 41276. Listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to the podcast again. Today, it's your friend. Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. I'm here in West Virginia for the Thanksgiving week, and uh, it's been an awesome couple of weeks. Charlotte, Ohio, Jacksonville, now West Virginia, and headed back to North Carolina next week, going to King, North Carolina. It's going to be an awesome week of revival, and uh, so I'm glad to have you guys back with me again. Got some good stuff to talk to you about today. We're going to jump into that in just a second. As you saw from the title, we're going to be talking about, is it really okay for Christians to be rich? Is it really okay? Got to get into that. Need to talk about that today. I'm getting so many questions, so many comments, by the way. Posted something the other day, uh, and it blows my mind, to be honest with you. It blows my mind how different the cultures of social media are literally that it's mind blowing. I could post the same exact thing on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the responses I get, which obviously are governed by the different cultures of the different social media outlets are so varied. It blows my mind. Like, it, you know, it's obvious like Instagram is like a real upbeat social media culture. Everybody's complimenting everybody all the time, you know, all of that. Whereas Twitter is, is more because it's turned into more of like a, it's almost like a news outlet. It's where people go to get their news or, or you know, whatever, whether it be sports news or political news, whatever. Um, it's kind of what it's become. So the interaction there is pretty matter of fact, but I don't get a whole lot of commentary necessarily and maybe that's because the algorithms playing now where they don't even let people see your stuff if they know they don't like it facebook however is unbelievable it's like a whole nother beast you can you can post the same exact comments on twitter instagram and facebook and where people will just you know write wow that's good or praise god on instagram on facebook you've got these patrolling people that are somehow responsible for the spiritual growth of the Facebook Christian universe. And I, I posted something and maybe you guys saw it. Um, 
what was it last week probably? And it was the quote that I, I you know, I was looking at some statistics. I was actually getting a coffee when, when I, uh, when I thought about this, but I, uh, I was in Starbucks and I'm sorry if you listen to this and somehow have boycotted Starbucks as a Christian, but I was in Starbucks getting a coffee and I started to think because I was like, man, I wonder how much people spend a year on coffee on average. And I just started doing some of the, some of the statistics on what, you know, what it costs for somebody to get a Starbucks. And the most, to be honest with you, most people I know, you know, they're getting a Starbucks every day of the week, you know, like Monday through Friday. If you're going to work or driving to work and you're getting your morning coffee fix, unless you're one of those people that's so finicky about coffee that you do it at home, you have like a pour over or you have like, you know, you're, you're somehow became like a, uh, like a coffee specialist, more power to you. Shout out to those people. Shout out to Brian Wright, who made me an amazing cup of coffee in North Carolina. He's become one of those specialists. Um, I didn't even know you could make Folgers crystals taste that good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, but unless you're one of those people, mo- most on their commute are grabbing a coffee Monday through Friday. So I just kind of did a little uh, average thing here, and I, and I and then I went on and got some statistics about people giving. Christians giving in church. So my post uh, basically just shed light on the fact that the average Christian's annual giving is about $800 a year. But the average person, which includes Christian, by the way, spends about $1,100 a year on coffee. That Now that's like the average. Many people spend like way more than that. But let's just say on a fair average, about eleven hundred dollars a year on coffee. So, it was really me just posting the two statistics. Uh, you know, the average American gives eight hundred dollars to their church and spends eleven hundred dollars a year on coffee. And I just said, let that sink in. You'd have thought that I personally slapped every coffee drinking Christian in the face after I posted that, just from the responses on Facebook. People were going out of their minds, out of their minds. I think by the end of the day, and this is insane to me, by the end of the day, that post, which is so simple, and it's not like I'm making stuff up. That's the statistics. I'm just stating facts is all I'm doing. I didn't get on there and start rebuking everybody. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of trying to show the state of people's heart, you know, in the, in, in, in the nation. 250 or 60 comments and some of these were like seven paragraph comments rebuking you know oh that's yeah that's a great idea that's how we should get people to be more generous shame them into being more generous i'm not trying to shame people into being generous i'm not even trying to get people to be generous i'm just wanting the people to be introspective about the fact the bible says where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think that's a pretty common, commonly known theme across you know the body of Christ. Hopefully, is and and really hopefully, even if you're not a Christian, you understand that people spend money on what they care about. You know, if there's somebody that likes hunting a lot, they're going to put a lot of money into hunting gear, guns, clothing, you know, blinds, tree stands, bows arrows, whatever it is you like, if you really enjoy hunting, 
you're going to put money into hunting, you know, and, and everyone does that no matter what they like, entertainment, sports, but the Bible is very clear where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And one of the things that's got me thinking about this, of course, today we're talking about, uh, is it really okay for Christians to be rich? Because I'm getting a lot of this from people, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, you know, little snarky comments or, you know, because I, I preach, you know, if you've heard me preach at all, you know what I preach and how I preach. So you get these snarky comments from people as though you're cheapening the blood of Jesus because you talk about prosperity as being part of the covenant that his blood purchased on the cross of Calvary. Oh, somehow you're cheapening what Jesus did because you talk about finances. Meanwhile, the majority of Christians in America and around the world are barely getting by, paycheck to paycheck, in credit card debt up to their eyeballs. They are the true servant to the lender in this nation and around the world. And it's not God's plan. So today I want to talk about the fact, is it really okay for Christians to be rich? And you know, it's funny because a lot of people, they'll quote half scriptures to you. People are notorious for doing this. They'll quote you a half scripture and it sounds right because you've heard something like that in the Bible before. It's like when people have, like, for example, people go through hard times or maybe there's like an attack or maybe it's just something that they did by choice that brought uh, an outcome they didn't want. You know, and anytime they're going through trouble, you know, there's always that one guy that'll quote a half verse to you. Be like, you know what the Bible says, brother? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Amen. You know, and that's what you just need to keep that in mind. As you're going through this time, as you're going through this trial, this tribulation, just keep it in your mind. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, brother. And they love to quote half the verse, but not the other half. Because the other half says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Not some of them, not half the time. The Lord delivers them out of them all. And here's another half scripture that people like to quote, but it's not even a half scripture. It's almost like they've modified it. And through the years, because people don't know the word of God, it's like a perversion of the scripture. And, the, and you, you may have even heard people say this. They'll say, and they're, and they're trying to quote first Timothy 610. And they'll say, well, you know what the Bible says, brother, money is the root of all evil. Nothing good can come from having too much money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. Doesn't say that at all. Paul told Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not evil. Money, once again, is an inanimate object. It is what you make it. It's a tool. It, you know, what I what I found is that when people get more money, it doesn't change who they are. It just amplifies who they are. If you were like a jerk before you got money, realize you couldn't afford to be that much of a jerk because you still needed relationships. You still needed your boss. You still needed to stay hired at your job. You still needed people hanging around you in case you needed favors done. But once you get money and don't need those people anymore, you don't have to hide the fact that you're a jerk. So money didn't make you a jerk. It just amplified the fact that you've been a jerk your whole life. So money just amplifies what you are. 
For example, if you're a giver, you'll be a giver before, you know, see, because the seed always comes before the harvest. A seed always has to go out before harvest can come in. So you can never fall into a place of extreme blessing without being a sower first. And see, that shows God your heart. So if you're a sower ahead of time, before you the, the massive blessing comes, when the blessing comes, it's not going to change who you are. You're still going to be a giver. You're just going to be giving at a much larger scale. So it's funny how people will take these little modified, manipulated, perver- uh, you know, perverted truths. You know, brother, money's the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't ever say that. Money is not the root of evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And people like to act as though that being wealthy or being rich or the desire, here's the other thing, the desire to become wealthy or the desire to become rich or the desire to have more than enough is wrong, that you shouldn't. That's greedy, brother. That's very greedy. You shouldn't have that. You should just learn. And, you know, they'll take Paul's uh, statements out of context as well, that you should just learn to be content. You should just learn to don't desire more. Just learn to be content. But see, while you're content where you are, you should always know that God has more available for your life. A a verse of scripture that we quote a lot on the podcast is found in Proverbs chapter four and verse 18. Very interesting because in this one verse, it shows God's desire for you and for me. And I find that verse interesting and I'll, I'll quote it to you in just a second. I find that verse interesting because you begin to see that no matter where you are in life, no matter what you have currently or what you're doing currently, if you belong to God, his potential for you is unlimited because he's an unlimited God. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day shines brighter and brighter. So you can see that the path of the righteous, that's you, your path should be getting brighter and brighter until the perfect day. One translation says, so your path is not supposed to be bright one year and dim the next year. That's not scriptural. You're not supposed to have an up year and then a down year blessed then struggling. Unfortunately, that's how many Christians are. And they'll treat you, and I'm talking about religious people or people like, you know, that act like they've got everything figured out. They'll treat you like you are a horrible person if you have an expectation or a desire to have overflow or to have more than enough. When clearly that is what Christ provided for his children, it's clearly what Christ desired. And I'm going to show that to you from scripture for his children. The Bible says Jesus taught you can't serve God and money. Well, that's true. That's clearly true. Because the love of money is the root of all evil. So if you love money, you begin to serve money instead of money serving you. And it's a massive mistake because that's when people start doing crooked things to get money because they care more about getting money than they do pleasing God. And that's where you have a massive issue. What does it look like when somebody serves money? Let me ask you that question. What does it look like when somebody is serving money? 
Well, number one, they spend their life plotting how to get more money and work with no regard for God or his house. Think about that. Number one, they spend their whole life plotting how to get more money and they work and work and work and work with no regard for God or his house. What do I mean by no regard for God and his house? Well, they'll work so much that they'll start saying, well, you know what? I can't, I can't be in church, you know, because I'm working. I can't come on Sundays anymore because I got a job where I'm working every day of the week. I can't come on Wednesdays, can't come on Sundays. You know, I'll just, I'll have church at home. You know, I can't, no, no. The Bible's very clear that you're to honor God one day of the week. And we've chosen Sunday to honor the resurrection of Christ that we gather together. It's not because we're pagans, as some would say. It's because that's the day Christ rose from the dead. And, and in the New Testament church, they they gathered together on Sunday, not as a day to worship the sun, as some knuckleheads try to point out. No, it's because that's the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So they would continue to meet on that day in remembrance of the fact he was alive and he is alive. So the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some, but as you see the day of the Lord approaching, gather all the more. So it's wrong for you to work a job trying to get more money, more money, more money and work seven days a week or work so much that you can't even be at church. That is serving money instead of money serving you. That's wrong. Just in case you thought I was being too (laughs) unclear. It's wrong. If you're working and working and working and you've got no time for God, that's a problem. How else do you know if somebody's serving money? Number two, they do immoral or corrupt things to obtain more money. They'll, They'll cheat. They'll cheat on their taxes. They'll launder money. They'll steal. They'll steal from others. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, you know, you you see this happen more, the more greedy people get, the more things they try to find to do to illegally get money, you know, tax sheltering, not paying taxes, stealing from others, embezzlement. You know, there's people in church that'll embezzle money. Our pastor, where we go to church now had you know, over a million dollars, I'm trying to remember the exact amount, stolen. I mean, the church had been saving money for a new property and a crooked man stole money. He's serving money. It's a problem. Doing crooked, immoral, corrupt things to obtain more money. Number three, what does it look like when somebody serves money? They refuse to tithe, give, and bless the poor. See, these are three things that God clearly told us to do with money. Number one, to tithe. Number two, to give offerings above and beyond the tithe. And three, to bless the poor. Those are three things that if you're a a believer that you should be doing, God has an expectation uh, for you to be doing these three things, obviously. But when people choose to say, you know what, I'm not going to tithe, I'm not going to give, I don't have time to bless the poor. And there's people, trust me, when I tell you that there are people all over America that treat God like that. Um, Literally, the tithing rate in the church, people that give 10% or more 
to the house of God of their income is less than 10% of the church. I think it's somewhere like between four and 6%, literally four to 6% of Christians are tithing. That's it. That is it. Crazy. And I'll post in the description, uh, the article, uh, with, uh, with a lot of these statistics, uh, that you can look at, it'll blow your mind. So that means 90 some percent of the people who call themselves children of God, who say they're sold out to God, don't even give 10%, which is the baseline, by the way, the baseline. So think about this. That means if those people aren't even tithing, they're not giving, they're not giving. And let me say this because there were people that said this, you know, in the post on Facebook, you know, well, you always talk about giving to a church, but you know, I consider giving, you know, when I work at a soup kitchen or when I come to church and I give my time to be on the choir, (laughs) it's like, bro, you're so far out. You don't even understand. Like that's your reasonable service. You know, if you have a gift that God gave you, And you're saying, well, you know, I could be getting paid. I should be getting paid for my time. I spend four hours, you know, a week in choir practice and then in the services, blah, blah, blah. And I'm doing it for free. That's my giving. No, that's God giving you a gift and you honoring him with the gift and not burying it in the ground. the, the, The time you take to volunteer for God's house never takes the place of your financial giving to God, ever. People say, well, you know, I give, I spend my time in soup kitchens. You know, sometimes I'll buy a coffee for a guy or I'll buy dinner for someone that's poor. You should bless the poor. I agree with blessing the poor, but blessing the poor does not take the place of giving to God in his house at the church doesn't take the place. It's just one of the ways we give. Yes, we bless the poor without question. We do it. But it also does not take the place of tithing and it doesn't take the place of giving offerings to the church. And so people are serving money. That is wrong. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. You'll love what he's teaching here in Matthew chapter six is that when you have more than one master in your life, you'll love one master and hate the other. So if you love money and it's your master, then you'll hate God. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting that we always talk about John 14, 21 on the podcast that Jesus said the only people that really love him are the people that obey his commandments. So it's true that if you even don't, if you won't even obey Hebrews 10, 25 to, to continue to be faithful to going to church, it's proof that you don't care enough about God to obey his word. So as a result, People that are doing that are serving money. They love that master and hate the other master. So we we get this view like money is wrong. You know, you know, you're greedy. If you think you should have more, you're greedy. And it is wrong. Let me let me tell you what is wrong. It's wrong for money to become your master. It's it's wrong for money to take your love. Your love should not be for money. Your and money should not be your master. Those are clearly taught against in scripture, but just, but stop there. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because I always wondered about that term. Like who's, who was like so dumb in history 
that they actually were throwing out the bathwater while the baby was still in the bath. And someone had to run, someone had to run in the room and was like, hey, listen, listen, listen. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> it's like that, that phrase always, we use it a lot, but that like strikes me funny. It's like, who was so negligent in history that they had, they had like a tin tub where they were giving a baby a bath and decided it was time to throw out the bathwater. Like, oh man, the baby, the baby was still in there. <laughs> oh, oh, let's get back on topic. Anyway, <laughs> don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because money should not be your master. And and just because you shouldn't have love for money doesn't mean money shouldn't be in your life. People say, well, brother, you think money's a sign somebody's spiritual. No, I don't. I don't think that money is a sign you're spiritual because there's a lot of people that aren't saved that have a ton of money. But on the flip side of that, and you need to get this in your spirit, if if you're a Christian and poor, if you're a Christian and you can never make ends meet, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Because while I don't believe that being wealthy or having a surplus of money or more than enough makes you spiritual, it definitely makes you unspiritual if you are poor and if you ever and, and if you never have more than enough and if you're always in a place where you're struggling. There's a problem there. And we're going to get into that in a minute. There is a problem there because if you go back throughout uh, history in the Old Testament, poverty was never a blessing. Poverty was always a curse. And it was a curse that resulted from disobeying God's laws, disobeying God's word. In fact, you... Uh, you know, I've, I don't know that I've ever done this necessarily on the podcast, but I, I reference it often. But in the Old Testament, I always tell you to go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Everybody loves to quote, you know, the first 14 verses. That's where all the blessings are listed. People get all excited. You'll be blessed going in, blessed going out, blessed in the city, blessed in the field. But listen to this. The Bible says, but if you refuse to listen to the Lord, your God, and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and over, overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be cursed. You continue reading all the way down to the end of the chapter. And you will find out that something like 34 of the 53 verses, something like that, 34 of the 53 verses of the curse deal with financial well-being. 63% of the curse of the law dealt with the economic welfare of God's children. He said, if you disobey my word, you will suffer financially. I mean, all the opposite things were true. If he told them, if you obey my word, you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the field. Your crops will be blessed. You'll be blessed coming in, blessed going out. 
I mean, he began to give them, I mean, it was so powerful to listen to the things that God said would take place if they would just obey him. He said, the Lord will send rain at the proper time from his rich treasury in the heavens and bless all the work you do. And you'll lend to many nations and you'll never need to borrow from them. That's Deuteronomy 28, 12. And he's telling them one thing after the other. I'll bless you. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land. He swore to give your ancestors uh, and blessing you with many children, numerous livestock and abundant crops. Think about this. I mean, God goes one through one thing after another and guarantees. Listen to verse eight. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. And the Lord, your God will bless you in the land he's giving you. These are the blessings that come upon you for obedience to the word. And poverty, by the way, was a sign, according to those scriptures, an entire chapter of scriptures. It was a sign that people had disobeyed the word of God. Poverty has always been a sign from the beginning of time. You know, when God put Adam in the garden, He had more than enough. That was God's original intent for man. Put him in a garden. He had more than enough. Tons around him. A surplus. And he said, go ahead and tend it and take care of it. That was God's desire for man. But sin caused that surplus to go. And what God was willing to just give Adam, he just literally just gave it to him and said, now just all you got to do is take care of it and tend it. After sin came in, he said, you know what? Now you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. See, everything changed when sin came in and it became laborious in order for you to get enough to survive or have extra. But in the beginning, God didn't expect it to be that way. He said, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to create this beautiful, lush garden, place you on the inside, and then I'm going to just give you the ability to tend it and have dominion in it. And that's God's desire. It's always been his desire. If wealth and riches were wrong, why did God bless so many of his men financially? You know, if, and it was, by the way, the Bible says very clearly that it was because of them obeying God and their covenant with God that they were blessed. If it was wrong to be blessed, why was Moses, the the Bible says, the greatest in all the land? He said it became very great in the land of Egypt. Job was the greatest man in the East. Wealthy. These men were very wealthy. You realize, don't you, that when Moses lived, the only man greater than him was Pharaoh. Moses was extremely wealthy. Job was extremely wealthy. Why did God bless his children? Look at Abraham. Abraham was, and the Bible actually says this, he became very rich in gold, in silver, and in livestock, became very rich. Same with Isaac. Did you know Isaac became so wealthy that a king of a nation showed up personally and said, would you please move away from here? You have become too great for us. Literally, how crazy is that? That the king had to show up and ask him to please leave their nation. Literally, his household wealth, all that he had, he was devaluing the currency of that nation. I mean, think about it. 
You've got to leave. You're too great for us, too mighty for us. Jacob was so blessed that literally God began to do supernatural things so that he'd have more and more and more. Do you know his his uncle Laban tried to trick him and tried to manipulate him and tried to, uh, you know, take his blessing from him. And so he said, listen, here's the deal. We're going to make it, make it extremely fair that when my cattle and my livestock have babies, you know, if they're spotted, you take them. And if they don't have spots, I'll take them. So you know what God did? God made sure that every baby that came out of the livestock was spotted so that Jacob would be abundantly blessed. If it's wrong to be wealthy, why did God supernaturally make so many of his people wealthy? Money's evil, brother. If it's evil, why did God make Abraham, his covenant man, very, very rich? Brother, you got to be you got to watch out, man. Money, money will come in. Money's money's wrong. Money's evil. If that's the case, why did Isaac get so blessed? Why was Jacob so blessed? Why was Job so blessed? Why was Moses so blessed? Then you talk about David and Solomon. David was ridiculously blessed. First Chronicles 29 is a mind-blowing story that you can look at how much money David gave to build the temple of God. He pulled out of his own personal treasury gold and silver and precious stones and metals and timber to build the temple of God. And the Bible says his elders saw it and they started doing the same. By the time they were done, they had literally given over $6 billion. $6 billion. Let me tell you something. Just in gold and silver, not counting the precious stones, metal, timber, whatever else, just in the gold and silver, they had given over $6 billion in today's value. You don't give that kind of money out of your own personal treasury unless you have some money. Not some money, unless you are very wealthy. Keep going. Solomon. Solomon was David's son and was literally so wealthy that a queen came to visit him and to really see if his reputation of all this wealth was was true. And she showed up with her caravans, camels, all of her stuff, trying to show off, to show him what wealth really looked like, and shows up and sees what he has. And it so freaks her out, the level of his wealth that she fainted. The Bible said her spirit left her. She fainted. Can you imagine that? She she had seen wealth. She had seen opulence. But she hadn't seen it really until she saw what Solomon had. She thought she was blessed until she came into the presence of God's man, Solomon. And then she really saw what blessing looked like. If money is evil, why did God abundantly bless his men with financial increase. Money's not evil. Money's a part of the covenant. Money has always, financial increase, financial blessing has always been a part of the covenant, Old Testament and new. 
the Bible says, see, there's a difference between the way the world has financial blessing and the way the church has financial blessing. You can have money as a sinner, but money does not give you peace. It doesn't give you joy. Interesting, isn't it? That there are men. I was talking about this recently. I don't know how, how recent it was, but I think it was last week. You know, it's interesting to me that there are millionaires and celebrities and people who've got all the money in the world and they still commit suicide. They still try to take their own lives. You know, they can't even keep their marriage together. They can't keep their children loving them. You know, it's it's insane. They end up, then there's some bankruptcy. Somebody stole from them. You know, it's a, a constant struggle. Why? Because money in and of itself is not a blessing. In and of itself, it's not. But the Bible says in Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. See, that's the difference with godly wealth and riches. It's that you have the wealth and riches, but all of the sorrow that's attached to those who don't serve the Lord when they have money is not attached to you and your money. That's the difference. Because the Bible is very clear in Psalm 112 verses 1 through 3 that wealth and riches will be in the house of those who delight in the commandments of God. There's no way to get around it. I mean, you go through the whole Old Testament, there's really no doctrinal way to get around it that the Bible promises time and again that literal wealth and riches will be in the house of the righteous who obey the mighty word of God. Wealth and riches are your covenant right because of Jesus. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to say that out loud with me as you're listening. Say, wealth and riches are my covenant right through Jesus Christ. Wealth and riches are my covenant right through Jesus Christ. And I'll show it to you in a moment. But very, very clearly seen in Old Testament, and now I'm going to show you new, that wealth and riches will be in the house of those who delight in the commandments of God. Did you know if uh, Psalm 1 actually says that when you delight in the commandments of God, don't stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. You'll be like a tree planted along the riverbank that will bear fruit in every season. Literally every season of your life, you will have harvests. See, that supersedes the regular world by itself because God created the world to only have one harvest season. But he said, if you'll obey my commandments, if you'll do what I'm telling you to do, I will clearly make sure that you have harvests in every season of your life. And so you have to understand it's not wrong. It is not at all wrong for Christians to be wealthy or rich. On the contrary, it is what you should be. You say, brother, I don't know that you, you don't think every Christian should be wealthy, do you? You don't think every Christian should be rich. Yes, I do. I think every Christian's covenant is a covenant of not only righteousness and salvation from sin, holiness, it's not just that. It's not just freedom from sickness and disease through the stripes that Jesus took upon his back, 1 Peter 2.24. It's not just that. It is also financial wealth and riches. 
for Jesus' blood also broke the curse of financial poverty off of his children. Does that mean that every one of his children takes advantage of that? No. In the same way that not every one of his children takes advantage of the healing covenant. There are many Christians that are sick, although they don't have to be sick. Does that mean just because Jesus purchased a covenant of righteousness that there's no Christians that commit sins? No. There are still Christians who commit sin and live in sin and then have to ask for repentance and some of them backslide, which is a whole other podcast in and of itself, which we will get to in the future. But just because it's available doesn't mean that every Christian walks in it. That's clearly seen. Because, see, we don't have promises. We have covenants. And a covenant's different than a promise, as I've taught you many times. A promise is one-sided and a covenant is two-sided. So there are things we can do to activate the covenant of God. You know, for example, with salvation from sin, you don't just automatically get saved. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it takes on your part to receive salvation from sin. You've got to confess that Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What about for healing? Well, the Bible lays it out in the book of James chapter five. Are there any sick people among you? Let them call for the elders of the church who will lay hands on them and anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. So there is a prescription for those that are battling sickness and disease. Your responsibility is to call for the elders of the church who will anoint you with oil, lay their hands upon you. And when they pray the prayer of faith, faith, the Lord will raise you up and the sickness will be healed. Notice you don't automatically get healed just because you're a Christian. There are steps you've got to take, steps of obedience. And the same is true with your covenant of prosperity and blessing is that it doesn't just fall on you just because you got saved. God set up a system of sowing and reaping. But I want you to understand this. I want you to go with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this is something that many people like to gloss over or act like it's not there. But I want you to see this with me. The Bible says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. By his poverty he could make you rich. And people like to look at this verse and say, well, brother, you know that means spiritually rich. It doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean it at all. In fact, do the Greek word study on this passage. The word rich is the word plutos or pluteo, and it means natural, physical riches and wealth. In fact, this entire passage, if you want to read in context, all of you hermeneutical scholars out there, if you want to look at the whole thing in context, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul's taking an offering, taking an offering from the Corinthians encouraging them to give financial gifts into the kingdom of God. So he's talking to them about finances. He's actually talking to them about wealth and riches. You go into 2 Corinthians 9, it becomes even more clear. And uh, here he's saying that Christ 
though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. A lot of people read this also and say, well, Brother Ted, you see that right there? Jesus himself was poor. Jesus himself was poor. But once you understand the context of poverty, that poverty is a curse, God said it was a curse. You know, that wasn't like Moses making stuff up in the book of Deuteronomy. So, well, you know, I know it says that, but, you know, Moses was probably just, you know, exaggerating so the people would get it. No, the word of God is inspired. Every word in our Bible is God breathed. Theonostos is the word used in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the Greek, and it's only used one time in the entire Bible, Theonostos, and it means God-breathed. Every word in the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. And when you read through the curses and understand that financial poverty is clearly a curse from disobedience, then you would have to also, if you're going to use logic and you're going to use proper hermeneutical skills in your study, you would have to agree that if Jesus was poor, it's because he was disobedient to the word of God. What did God tell Joshua in Joshua chapter one when he was transitioning into leadership over the nation of Israel? He said, take this book of the law, Joshua 1, 8, Don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditate upon it day and night so that you will be careful to observe and do all that's written herein. Then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Same thing God said through Moses to the children of Israel, that if you're obedient, what did God say through the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah 119, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land, not the average. You won't survive. You'll eat the good. What did God say to Job? Job 36, 11, if they will only obey and serve me, they will spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. You see that the key is obedience. When you obey the mighty word of God, it brings profitability, brings increase, profitability and increase. Did you know that Paul actually taught that concept to Timothy? He said it like this. This is 1 Timothy 4, 8, by the way. Physical training is good, But training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come, promising benefits in this life. Listen to how it says in the New King James, bodily exercise only profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Godliness is profitable for all things. Godliness, which is just obeying the word of God, brings profit in every area of your life. That, you know what the Bible says in the book of Psalms? Psalm 84, 11, that God will not withhold any good thing from people that walk uprightly, righteously. He will not withhold any good thing thing from people who walk uprightly 
or righteously. So we're looking back here, the verse in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where the Bible says, though he was rich, speaking of Jesus, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you could become rich. And we know the word means rich. It doesn't mean spiritually rich, it means rich. Just like Abraham was rich, just like Moses was rich, Isaac was rich, Jacob was rich, Job was rich, Solomon was rich, David was rich, just like all of God's men throughout the covenant it means the same here. He could make you rich. But here, see, people say, see, brother, you just contradicted yourself because it clearly says Jesus was poor. He became poor. What was the timeline of Jesus becoming poor? Because if we know, which, which I just explained to you, if we know that poverty is a result of a curse coming upon your life from disobedience, are you going to tell me that Jesus was somehow disobedient to his father and because he was disobedient he was made to be poor no no in fact if you uh if you read the book of hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 the bible says that christ was the perfect picture of the will of god on the earth perfect picture of the will of god on the earth in fact he couldn't even say anything unless he heard his father say it and he couldn't do anything unless he saw his father do it. Jesus never sinned once in his life. So he couldn't be cursed. Jesus couldn't have been cursed. He was not cursed. Jesus never sinned. Watch this. Jesus was never sick. Sickness was part of the curse. Christ was never sick. Find me one scripture in the Bible where, where Jesus said, listen, guys, I know we got meetings coming up, but I got bronchitis. And ain't nobody got time for that. So I'm going to I'm gonna ask you guys, if you don't mind, to just go out there for me and just take a couple of my meetings because uh, I'm just not going to be able to make it. No. Jesus, find me one scripture that, that shows Jesus was sick. Jesus was never sick. Jesus never sinned and Jesus was never sick. And in the same way, Jesus was not poor. He was not cursed while he lived on the earth. And I have... Look, I don't have time to cover Was Jesus Poor? I have other podcasts on that. But I'm just wanting to show you this before we move on to show you that the timeline, when did Jesus become poor? Because the Bible says he became poor. But when did that happen? The same time he became sin. And the same time he took sickness upon himself. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. When, when was he made sin? On the cross. When did Christ take sickness upon his body? On the cross. And in the same way, he became poor. When? Not during his life on the earth, on the cross. And destroyed sin, sickness, and poverty through his death, burial, and resurrection. He became poor on the cross so that you might become rich, so that you might have more than enough, so that you may have an abundance because the Bible says money answers all things. Money, whether you like it or not, that verse is in the Bible. Money answers all things. Money gives you influence 
on the earth. That's why the Bible says in the Old Testament that a man could be shouting wisdom in the streets and nobody would listen to what he said because he's poor. A man could be shouting wisdom in the street but be despised because he's poor. See, that's why people always ask celebrities what they think about things because they think because they have money and they also have influence. That's why you end up having people who have no idea what they're talking about giving advice to the next generation just because they have money because they're a celebrity of whatever they're famous for. Remember this, when you're blessed, it gives you a voice of influence. When David spoke, people listened. When Abraham spoke, people listened. When Isaac spoke, people listened. When Jacob spoke, people listened. When Job spoke, people listened. When Solomon spoke, people listened. When you're blessed, it gives you a voice. You can make impact. You're influential on the earth. Now, jump over with me to Revelation chapter 5. Now, I want to show you this before we go. See, because, and here's the other thing that bothers me is that people have this, and I'm going to tackle this hard before we go and before I pray for you. I want to tackle this hard. People have this idea that you should not want or desire or have more because there are others in the world who have less. What a demonic thought process. You know, the kingdom of God is not a socialist kingdom. It's not. God's not Bernie Sanders. So, If you think God's all about the equal distribution of wealth, you don't understand how God works because the Bible's pretty clear, especially in the parable of the master giving talents to his servants in Matthew 25, that based on their previous abilities, he gave one five, the other got two and the other got one. The one with five doubled it. The one with two doubled it. The one with one buried it in the ground and got, and the master called him a wicked servant and sent him into outer darkness where there was gnashing of teeth. And it's interesting. He took the one talent that the man had buried in the ground and gave it to the man who had, uh, at this time, 10 talents. And people look at that and say, how unfair is that? The guy already had 10. Why not give it to the one who had four? At least he'd have five now because that's not how God works. And the, and, the, and the Bible explains it shortly thereafter and says to him that has, more will be given. But to him that does not have or do, do well with what he have, even what little he does have will be taken away from him. That's the scripture. To him that has, more will be given. So God's not about equal distribution of wealth. He's looking for people that believe the covenant and are activating the covenant. And he said, if you have some now, there's a reason you have. And guess what? More will be given to you. God's not, God does not look at the, the, the state of the world the same way we do because he understands the causes and effects of covenant. He understands there's a reason why people are in the situations they're in. And it's, he has nothing to do. He can't pull people. Like, what do you do when a nation devotes its nation to thousands of demonic gods? And the nation has gone through the ages with these thousands of demonic gods being worshipped, and the the nation is in abject poverty. You think that's some kind of a coincidence? 
that these third world nations are, are, are nations where there's, you know, that, that polytheism is practiced regularly. You think that's like some massive coincidence? No, because when you dishonor God, you can't hold and receive the blessings or protection of God. It's not some random, this like, man, I don't understand why these nations know everybody's ribs are showing and nobody, nobody has food to eat. Meanwhile, they're, they're sacrificing to demonic gods. You know, you go to places like India where they still, they, there are still Kali worshipers, the, the demonic God Kali and still giving blood human sacrifices to a God, a demonic God named Kali. A place like India where there's thousands of gods being worshipped. You say, I don't understand where the poverty, what's up with the poverty? People don't understand that when you dishonor and disregard God, you cannot have the blessings of God. And so God's not about the equal. He understands there's a reason why some are in the state they're in. You say, well, that's not fair. You know, many of those people didn't choose for their nation to be a polytheistic nation? No, but the Bible also teaches that the sins of the father will be transferred to the children. You know, the next generation will either suffer or be blessed by the decisions of the previous generation. My kids will be more blessed than I am because of my dedication to God. I'm more blessed than my parents were because of their dedication to God. They were more blessed than my grandparents were because of my grandparents' dedication to God. And as as the generations uh, roll forward, that you can continue increasing because of your dedication to the kingdom of God. And, and you understand that the blessings of the fathers and mothers can come on the children and in the same way the the curses or the the sins of the father can come on the, the the children as well. And that's what's happened throughout the world. So God understands that people are in the situations they're in and he knows why they're in those situations. So when he says, when I take what people, the little they have and give it to ones that do have already, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. I want to read you this uh, before we before we close, before I pray for you, but you need to understand that it's just because, you know, and that's how they'll paint you. They'll say, well, how could you still desire to have more when other people don't have enough? Look, how can I even be a blessing to other people unless I have more than they have, unless I have more than enough to take care of all my responsibilities and my children and my family, and then have an excess left over to bless other people. How can, you know, how can I do that? That's like ridiculous that people don't understand that. How can you desire to have more? I desire to have more because the Bible said I can have more. It's part of my covenant. Christ died to receive wealth and riches. I'll read that to you in a minute from the book of Revelation chapter five and verse 12. It specifically says that the lamb was slain to receive wealth and riches. So don't tell me it's not part of my covenant. It's clearly part of my covenant. It's part of your covenant. And you should have what Jesus died for. Don't, when people re- reject this stuff, it's like a slap in the face to Jesus who shed his blood to purchase some things for you. And we're not going to leave those things on the cross. We're taking them with us. Let me just read it and then I'll talk a bit more and then pray. The Bible says, the angels said with a loud voice, Revelation 5, 12, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, 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 get that, 
and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and blessing. So understand that the lamb was slain to receive power and riches. First two things, power and riches, riches. That probably freaks people out that that word's actually included in the, in the, the what of redemption. What did Jesus purchase at redemption? Riches, riches. He purchased riches, financial riches, well, brother, how could you cheapen the grace of God? How could you cheapen the redemptive act of Jesus Christ by talking about money? Uh, because the Bible does. Because the Bible does. Because Paul did. And because John the Revelator did. And these were things given from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the writers. And Paul said very clearly, Christ became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. And John the Revelator wrote from inspiration of Jesus Christ himself, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and riches. <laughs> it's it, how, how people don't see this. I do not know. But God has given us the system of sowing and reaping so that an abundance can come back to us. An abundance must come back to us. More than enough should come back to us. And see, here's the thing. People don't even truly live and believe these criticisms that they spew. Because think about this. I mean, if you really wanted to ride this out to the nth, nth degree in logic, you know, there's people who say, well, look at these preachers. How could these people get on television and flaunt their $60 million jet and fly around in a private $60 million? Do you know? Now, listen, I actually had a conversation with people, and this this is what they said. Do you know, I was looking at this such and such preacher who just bought this 60-something million dollar jet, and do you know that uh, he could have bought the same type of jet that would have flown him the same distances in the same amount of time for $30 million instead of $60 million? And so it was so wrong for him to buy a $60 million jet instead of a $30 million jet. And here's the thing I always say to them. Well, let me ask you a question. The house that you're living in, you know, you have a family. Is it a four-bedroom house? Uh, yeah, yeah. Is it a three-bedroom house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and let's say you paid $250,000 for your house. Yeah, yeah, we, we did. Yeah, we paid $250,000. Well, I could go online and find a house that has three bedrooms that you could have purchased for $150,000. How selfish of you to spend an extra $100,000 on this house that you're in simply because you like the neighborhood better that it's located in. When you could have easily gotten a house that was the same three bedrooms that would have fit your family and would have kept you out of the elements and blah, 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 blah. And you could have taken that $100,000 and given it to the poor. Let's break it down even further because I mean, you know, whatever. Let's break it down even further. What do you got there? A car that you, it cost you $30,000? Got a $30,000 car? What do you have? A $20,000 car? Yeah driving it around. Why in the world would you drive a $20,000 car when you could easily go down to the used car lot and buy a car for, you know, $4,800 and take the extra $15,000 and bless the poor? How dare you? How dare you drive a $20,000 car 
around this around this you know city when you could have easily gotten a five thousand dollar car that would have got you to work just as well. You could have given that extra fifteen thousand to the poor. Let's go even further. Let me break it down to show you how stupid this thought process is. You shouldn't have more because others have less. You shouldn't be blessed because others don't have enough. Let me show you how stupid and demonic that thought process is. Like I'm gonna take, I'm gonna break it all the way down. It's like you know, it's like what are those? What are you wearing? Nikes? What do you got? Nike shoes on? We got Adidas. Yeah. How dare you wear those Nike shoes? What did those cost? What did those Nike running shoes cost? Eighty five dollars? A hundred dollars? Did you pay $100 for those Nike Nike running shoes? Those Adidas running shoes? How dare you, as a Christian, wear Nike running shoes that cost $100 when you could have gone to Walmart and gotten those, you know, who even knows what brand they are? I don't even know if they have a brand. They're just called shoe. But they cost <laughs> they cost $14.88 on rollback at Walmart. How dare you? Wear those Nike shoes in the house of God when you know very clearly and very well that you could have spent $14.88 at Walmart and got the same shoe that would cover your foot and keep your foot from walking on the elements and you could have been completely fine and taken the other $85 and blessed the poor. How dare you? How dare you? Let me go even a step further. Let me get even cheaper on you. Final one. What are you eating, Cheerios? What is that, Lucky Charms? Oh, you got Fruit Loops, did you? Ah, Fruit Loops. You got Cheerios. How dare you? How dare you sit there at your table with your little smug face and eat Cheerios when you know very well you could have gone to the generic section in the aisle and bought Toastios. You could have eaten, what are you eating, Fruit Loops? You could have eaten Fruity Rings. You know you could have. You selfish. Oh, how? And you know very well you paid three, what is it, $4.15 for a box of Fruit Loops, family size, when you could have easily spent a dollar ninety nine for fruity rings or toastios, and you could have given that extra two dollars to the poor. This is how stupid this thought process is. And remember that if something's true, it's true on every level. If something's truth, it it's it it's remains true at scale. Meaning if it's true with sixty million dollars, it's true with sixty dollars, it's true with six dollars. But see, people don't want to get an introspective and, and realize, you know, this is, it's like one author that I was listening to. This is called cognitive dissonance. It means when somebody proves to you that you don't even believe the way you're talking, it freaks people out. It takes people a minute to wrap their mind around the fact that the thing I'm arguing for, I don't even believe myself. And that's how it is. Because unless you're going to do all of those things, you know, I would respect somebody that did all that, you know, more power to you, but don't, you know, have this double standard where you're criticizing people who, who are having more and doing far more to bless people than you are and think it's so wrong because others don't have enough. 
You know what Jesus said? The poor you will always have with you. So remember this. Doesn't mean we shouldn't bless the poor. We should do everything we can to bless the poor. But remember this. Jesus prophesied. That was a prophecy. Anything Jesus says can never be made untrue. World poverty will never be solved. Global poverty will never be solved. Jesus plainly said, the poor you will always have with you. So it doesn't matter how many humanitarian efforts go out, blah, 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 blah. The poor will always be there. If Do you realize if everybody on the planet was given an equal distribution of wealth, that in one week there would be extremely rich people and extremely poor people? Because that's how it, that's how it is. The poor you will always have with you. So to believe that you shouldn't have more because others have less is ridiculous. There will always be people who have far less for many reasons. And disobedience to the covenant is one of the main reasons. But Jesus died so that you could have riches and wealth. He died to purchase it. His redemptive act was a purchase so that you could have wealth and riches, so that you didn't have to be in poverty and lack. Remember, you are God's child. And in the same way that I don't want to see my children living in poverty and lack, barely scraping by, it would break my heart to see my three kids living in abject poverty, having to scrape by, you know, just to make ends meet in life. No loving father wants to see that. And I'm talking about natural human fathers. This is Matthew chapter seven, if you've never read it, but understand God is our heavenly father who loves us far more than we love our children, does not want us to be living in poverty, paycheck to paycheck, can barely make ends meet, struggling, you know, it's, it's demonic, it's demonic. And it, it, it came into the world through the result of sin and Jesus died to turn the tables on the devil and to give you your rightful inheritance of not just salvation from sin, not just healing from sickness, but deliverance from poverty and lack so that you can have more than enough to do what you're called to do. Don't ever let anybody make you feel bad for the blessing of God that's in your life. They didn't give it to you, so they have no ability to comment on what God's doing. Let those things roll off your back like water off a duck's back. Don't even allow it to bother you. Not once. I could care less. I've actually had people write me letters. They saw me on television and wrote me a letter and drew me a a diagram in the letter. Say, saw you had a nice watch on while you were preaching. No preacher should ever wear a watch like that. And then proceeded to draw me a picture in in the letter of what an acceptable watch would look like on the wrist of a minister. I mean, people have literally lost their minds. Don't allow people to make you feel bad about the covenant you have with God and the fact that he's your provider and that he will bless you beyond anything you could imagine. Let me pray for you before we close this podcast episode today. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray that not only do you continue to open our eyes to see the fullness of the covenant that we have with you, I'm asking you now in the mighty name of Jesus, give us a desire to have more than enough so that we can do more for the kingdom than we've ever done. The kingdom is our number one priority. And we thank you that your word says 
that if we'll seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, that all these other things will be added into our lives in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you for that. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Listen, I love you guys. I want you to take a minute, if you haven't done so already, and share this podcast episode on your social media, whether it be on your Instagram stories, on your Instagram feed, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever. If there was something in this episode that stood out to you, a quote, something I said, do the quote, share the quote with somebody and invite them to listen to the podcast with you. If it's blessed you, let somebody else be blessed by it also. I love you guys so much. I'll be back on Wednesday. I'm sorry I I missed this last Wednesday for uh, Worship Wednesday podcast, man. I was running hard, traveling, and going nonstop. But we're going to be back again this Wednesday for Worship Wednesday uh, podcast as well. I love you guys. Don't forget until Wednesday, goodness and mercy are following you for the rest of your life. Talk to you soon. We would love for you to join us in a live service. To find out when Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. will be near you, please visit our website at www.miracleword.com. Oh, 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 o